This is a becoming creature. On this episode, I talked to Kay, who you can find on Twitter at K-E-H-W-H-O. We talk about becoming embodied, trusting your intuition, appreciating your ancestors, communing with nature, the value of small communities, experiencing nature through culture, and so much more. I had a lot of fun talking to Kay. Uh, it was, she's, she's wild, just full of energy, and uh, I hope you enjoy Hey, it's so good to talk to you today. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> so that was the, that was the, that was the start. No, no I was kind of like I was like, oh, it'd be funny if I just didn't say anything. <laughs> well, you you really got me good. Okay, so on, so on Twitter, your name is. Jimmy Buckets, uh, where where did that come from? That came from the NBA. <laughs> I don't even remember who the exact player was, but I was like watching the playoffs and the sports and that. So it was like, Jimmy Buckets at it again. I was like, yo, that's me. <laughs> just because you're, you're like sick, like you're dope, like Jimmy Buckets. So you said, that's me. I'm just going to mm-hmm. go with it. Jimmy Buckets be clutch in the place where you need it to be least clutch. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, I I apologize. I don't actually I don't know anything about basketball. I'm one of those guys. But we were talking earlier, and you mentioned that when you were young, you migrated to Alaska. Can you tell me a bit about that transition? Was there culture shock, and um, what was that experience like? Oh, there was major culture shock, not just because I moved elsewhere, but because it's like such a unique location. So Mm -hmm. when I was eight years old, I had to learn like all these different social norms. I went from like going to a private school, a private Christian school in the Philippines wearing uniforms and like literally saying a prayer every morning with the entire school to like going to a public school in like a really poor neighborhood in Hawaii where you didn't wear a uniform and the teachers weren't sincere with you and the kids had so much more freedom than what I was used to. Like I had never done a sleepover before and I had to learn new language and and then that was a major uprooting and then moving all the way back up, not back up, but like moving all the way up to Alaska. I had to adjust to like a way smaller town and an intimate community but I think that because this place so Dutch Harbor is like the number one fishing port in the I think world Mm -hmm. um, it draws a lot of that workers culture and so like we have a lot of diversity and we had so it was similar to Hawaii because there are a lot of like outsourced people for labor (laughs) and this was just like a microcosmic version 
Tell me a little bit about the difference in religious exposure. Like I also went to a Christian school when I was younger and I also had that public school transition. But what was your experience with that? Oh my gosh, I feel like I've transformed so much to where like I can't even remember who I used to be. But I remember like working through so much. I feel like it was way too much structure for like a mind that needed space to be wild in a way because every time you challenge these assumptions that were taught to you you feel it's like gate kept by shame and guilt and all of that and then it's reinforced in your own family and so it was it was a lot to work through but when I moved to Alaska there was less family so it was just me my brother my mom and dad and they stopped going to church just because my dad was working all the time and like eventually that like not exposing ourselves to the church was kind of a necessary space to liberate our spirit in a way. Wow. What was the most difficult thing for you to get used to in that cultural shock? What was the the biggest difference or the strangest difference to you? Um, I'd say the biggest difference was like the diversity because I had only been around like brown kids who were like this who spoke the same language as me came from the same environment as me but like the diversity was actually like both enlightening and challenging because like in a way when you come from such a special place to you and then you move to a different place where you're a complete stranger nobody cares about your story and so nobody cares to hear part of how to understand yourself is to carry your story and I just had to learn so much about the world around me that I like kind of had to forget myself for that little bit. You are in this new diverse world where you have to confront a lot of ideas. And I assume that that was a bit overstimulating, but it's also more difficult because everything is so much more colorful that you need to find a way to explain yourself or to bring yourself to the fore so that you could get attention and the things you need from friendships and and from connecting to this community? Oh, for sure. Like, I definitely had to learn how to <laughs> make friends, which kind of was like a given when you live in like, it was harder to make friends. And I had to learn how to, I don't know, get over like these simple fears like, oh, I've never said hello to a stranger before. or I've never... You know, like, it's just like super simple, basic rudimentary stuff that like you probably learn naturally, but I had to like mechanically and methodically learn it myself. And I was like, God, this is fucking awkward. I find that the people that have a very difficult time learning something can actually become the best teachers because they went through the process of developing those skills they can explain it to other people that also struggle with that. And so if it came to you naturally, you wouldn't have a, a way to explain that. So my question to you is through this difficulty of trying to form relationships, did you learn anything about like the best way of going about that or, or how to um, create new connections in a way that was positive and in a way that you could form better relationships? Ooh, this is like kind of hard for me to answer because it's like not really the point of my learning. But I like I do understand that embodiment when you witness when you're present for your process of embodiment, then you could sh use that as a tool to help others, which is probably like what you're asking. 
Let me ask my question a little bit differently. Okay. How, how did you end up making friends and forming connections in this new world with a lot of people whose ideas you're still getting used to? It was a lot of involvement and challenging myself to like feel what I felt. It would make me so anxious to say the L word to my family because I never said it. I never like, I had never said I love you to my parents. Or I never even like heard it from them until I was probably a sophomore in high school. Even in my family space, we didn't have that intimacy. And so like to bring that to everywhere else in my life was like a lot to carry too. Saying hi to a stranger was like really scary for me. I like unreasonably like holy shit like my heart's beating so fast like I can't speak but it's just like feeling through that you know yeah absolutely and it's a little bit surprising to hear that you dealt with anxiety because on your account to me it seems like you're one of the most comfortable people like comfortable in their own skin out of everybody I I interact with so um, do you still struggle with anxiety at all? And what have you done to try and overcome that? So I feel like my own journey of like culture and connection is what taught me to value myself. And like everybody can study their way into self-love, but sometimes you just got to let your story tell itself and find a way to sit in it. And I think that's what it taught me is when you hang out with nature when you like finally get over these like petty little obstacles then you see just how grand everything else is and then you see how grand you are like I don't know I didn't identify with my anxiety as much as I felt through them and so that was really important to me and I also didn't have a way to define what I felt I didn't know what anxiety was when I had it I didn't know what depression was when I had it and so being able to not localize that feeling mm. is kind of what allowed me to like feel through it. And I think like in today's world where you can literally define everything, like judgmental people are like, oh, that guy's virtue signaling. We're social fucking animals. Like everybody's fucking virtue signaling. Like what the fuck is virtue signaling? <laughs> right. Um, right. And so it like prevents you. So there are some ways where language prevents you from opening up a potential to understand when you're saying you're depressed you almost if you spend more time identifying the feeling then you spend less time feeling through it and almost every single time the only way to get out of that feeling is to feel through it so because you didn't identify immediately with your emotions and because you were able to embody you had the tools to move forward through your emotions. So if you say, I'm a failure, then when something goes wrong, that's your reason for that thing going wrong. But if you say I'm a success, then when things go right, you can take more responsibility. And so the way we identify with things will kind of work in perpetuity into the future. And those ideas like I'm an anxious person are self-fulfilling, right? And it's it sounds like what you did was you looked to awe and and the beauty in, of the world in order to experience each present moment in its fullness rather than constantly attaching yourself. And that allowed for great growth. Yeah, 
just like being unconditional with your presence and also like you start to realize that like defining yourself in certain ways and too often like thinking about yourself too much and who you are and who you want to be is is greedy and I feel like it takes away from the all of who you really are because the moment you define or you proclaim yourself, you cease to be that because you can only describe things that are not embodied. Like a pure person doesn't know that they're pure. And the moment someone says, I'm innocent, like not in a, not in a, like I'm about to be sentenced to death way, but like the moment, I feel like the moment you proclaim your innocence, the moment you cease to possess it. I just feel like language is a momentary way of disembodying your own personal chaos so that you can like watch it and see it in different angles but language is powerful in that way because the moment you start proclaiming the world around you then you fail to see what they really are in a way that's what culture taught me because culture isn't isn't defining all of those things it's building a relationship between those things and it isn't it, it's not as clearly defined and so you can't like there is no path to follow, but there is like a terrain to walk. I don't know if that makes sense. So it's kind of like the Garden of Eden, right? That Adam and Eve would never have said, I am innocent, because the only way to form a concept of innocence is to form a concept of guilt. And they didn't have a concept of guilt until the aid of the tree of um, knowledge of good and evil. And then when they entered into sin, then they would be able to say, oh, I did nothing wrong. But before we have a concept of wrongness and rightness, then we can't criticize it. And in that same way, there's that quote that goes, I actually forget the quote, but it's basically like, you can only criticize the things that you also have inside of you. Because if I call a person narcissistic, it must mean that I can recognize narcissism. And if I recognize narcissism, it means that I at some point experienced it. Yes, yes. Oh, I was just going to say that we function through recognition and <laughs> we're living, breathing math because of that recognition. And I think the moment every word we say fits us into a different geometry and it aligns us in a different way. So literally everything we say navigates us through this like unseen geometry. So if I decide that the proclamation to join Twitter aligned me in a way, and that's just like a super not good example of it, but I met you and that aligned me in that way. <laughs> and now we're talking about language. Yeah. That was a really ugly way of explaining it i'm not poetic <laughs> i think you sometimes you are a little poetic for instance uh once you said imagine for a moment that you loved you like your ancestors loved you that you took care of you like hundreds of generations in the unseen realm took care of you every inch every thought rooting for you seeing your beauty giving with your heart sharing life so i i do think you can be a little <laughs> bit poetic but tell me a little bit of about this concept of, of loving you like your ancestors loved you, because I don't have, I like, I don't personally have that concept of my ancestors. So can you share more about that? Okay. So I think it sounds very poetic, but I think poetry is just a way of um, 
not describing the world in words themselves, but in the relationship between those worlds. And I believe that it's a feminine way of using language because it's intuitive. Um, and what I was trying to illustrate when I was saying that is this larger story that came before you that is important to honor. If you can't value that other or acknowledge or recognize that other life happened so that you could happen, then there's like less things to gauge your capacity to appreciate. I think that connection to the past is really important. It makes it so that your concept of yourself is a little bit more expanded. And when you touch on your ancestors and history in the past, I feel like it dissolves a lot of like our personal judgments about who we are and what we believe about the world because it acknowledges that the world is always happening and the world just is. And I'm not saying like ancestors just as in humans, but like I'm sharing that same air and everything that's been here has always been here. And I don't know, I just feel like it's like expansive and I like that. Having a connection with the world around you, past, present, and future, is empowering because that, like, when you look at the past, you can't change it and you have to accept it as nature in a way. Like, so this is what is possible. And I think when you accept the past as nature and the present as nature, then you could be more one with it and feel empowered in the way that you can change things personally. Because I think that. A lot of our empowerment is, well, at least the way I see it, is that people are not humbled by their own power, and so they abuse it. I'm humbled by my own power because mm -hmm. when I look at the world around me, like, God, the most beautiful things in this world don't even expect to be seen. They don't even expect to be heard. Like mountains don't fucking speak and yet they like just emanate this beauty. And like, so who am I to just like be anything more than I already am? Like, it's just like so disrespectful when I look at the world around me and they're just like, I'm just living. <laughs> and you seem to have a unique relationship with the environment. You often talk about the earth and the stars and the sky, and you're now talking about nature. And accepting nature, can you tell me a little bit about your relationship and your experience with the earth and the natural world? I feel like the you, you are you familiar with like the occult sciences? No, but I'd love to learn. Okay, well, I for those who <laughs> I wouldn't know how to explain it in like a super diluted or not diluted, but in a super simple way. But for those who are familiar with occult scientists. Those who are familiar with occult scientists understand that it is a way of using language to hold more power than the words can, which is like similar to poetry in that it's the relationship between those words and the relationship around those words that actually, that it actually holds and not the words themselves. And the environment and the, the divine feminine in a way the feminine aspects of life in nature is where that occult sciences really like thrive. And I think it's, mm -hmm. and it's the only thing, it's like 
chaos in its truest form is nature. And when you learn to understand that, like, nothing in this world bothers you, or at least nothing in the man's world will bother you. And this relationship with the earth developed because I'm I'm an immigrant and because I'm surrounded by, like, you know, like the indigenous people and like I am, we are indigenous people. And all that really means, I, I learned at the end of the day, is just like a group of people who stayed and had a relationship with the land long enough to develop that relationship with it, to embody that relationship with it. I'm from the Philippines. I come from the tropics and I live by the coast. My people live by the coast. And everything we create is a relationship with that environment. And it's not that we don't know that today. I think it's just that we forget that. And like our trees are made from coconut trees and our roof is made from like dried coconut leaves. And like everything is a reflection of our communion with nature. And it makes sense when you think about it in a way that is aligned because your body like is constantly building itself to thrive in its environment and what better way to learn to thrive in your environment than being with it consuming from it and like just getting to know it and the same thing applies when I moved to Hawaii those people their culture reflects their relationship with the environment they didn't have a lot of conquerors and for a really long time because they're just like so strategically located in the middle of the fucking ocean that they can establish such like peace and poeticness in the way that they sing their songs like if you've just listened to hula it's beautiful and it sounds like the ocean and it sounds like people who only know love and when you go a little bit higher up with the indigenous people in alaska their language sounds like when you step in a fresh fluff of snow. I can't describe it any way else, but it's a beautiful language and it's complex. And And they wear clothes that are made from the seal that they hunt. And so every day it's like embedded in their thoughts and their thoughts embedded into their DNA and like it just makes so much sense to develop that relationship with the world. But I feel like in today's world, we don't really get to do that as much. We don't get to develop that relationship. And so we don't get to be empowered and we don't get to draw strength from that relationship because it barely exists. So you're talking about how being in certain types of communities allows you to interact with the world in more intimate ways. And earlier you were talking about how when you move to Alaska, you move to um, small communities. And I was wondering what your thoughts might be about being in a, in a small community and the relationships you develop within that community and how that might be different compared to somebody that's, you know, living in a tiny apartment in a, in a large building and working at, you know, a, a corporation with 500 employees, et cetera. It's just, I feel like right now, at least emotionally and spiritually, there is a need to come back to that sense of like intimacy. And it's not necessarily just like small communities, but I guess it's like starting with yourself. You don't need a community to commune with nature. Um, but but like it does seem like a major need to like go back to that smaller community because like 
many people have talked about talked about this before, but like when you're in a smaller community, there's a greater chance for you to elevate yourself and be an important part of that community. And I think what people don't realize is that we draw a lot of strength from that, or we can draw a lot of strength from that. Like we don't have to be everything for everybody. We could just be the world for our world and you can choose that. And I think like smaller communities reflect those tribes in a way for indigenous people, because everybody there's that sense of intimacy and it's easier to build a sustainable structure. And it's not that like people don't have that capacity today, like in big cities to build a strong structure, but it's not just, it's just not in our nature right now. It's not where our consciousness is at. Like nobody sitting in a one bedroom fucking apartment, at least not that maybe, maybe I'm just cynical, but nobody like thinks about the rest of their community. Like, what can I give them today? Because they're just like that disconnected. Like, no, they're going to like, or they don't have a community to contribute to, right? Yeah. And I think people don't know how to define that desire. Yeah. The way I'm interpreting this um, concept of intimacy, it's it's as if you're you're collaborating with people that are with you on the journey. Like they have an alignment of purpose. And you once wrote that if you're mad at me, I will just acknowledge you have a desire to be aligned with me in some way, which means you want to fuck, <laughs> which empowers me to decide, am I down to fuck? I do not fight anger with anger. I will just ask myself if I am down to fuck. And so my question here is that, so you have the intimacy component and then you also have this anger component, right? Which is, kind of highlighting the fact that two people are not aligned, but necessarily have the desire to be aligned. So I feel like this is connected to what you're talking about um, with small communities and intimacy. And um, I'm wondering how you think about alignment in kind of a, a more grand way that you encompass a lot of different emotions into this. Uh, yeah, in a, I guess, I don't know if it's relevant or it's tangential, but um, <laughs> that was kind of like, I, <laughs> I'm just laughing because you brought that up because I forgot I tweeted that. <laughs> but um, no, like, when you know the power of zero and one, you know what they are capable of creating. And everything is just that. <laughs> So what is that? I I don't know that concept. What do you mean the power of zero and one? It's the power. Zero is the manifestation of the infinite and chaos and the divine feminine. I believe that one is the force that asserts and builds and is masculine. And the concept Mm. of feminine and masculine is not to define gender. Gender just happens to be like a human manifestation of that. Because we can create things just with our word. And it just happens to be that when you reverberate in a way that is unifying, I guess, then things will naturally create themselves. Push and pull up, down, like, is the only way to navigate through this space. When you say you can create something with a word, are you talking about like the power of belief? How would you put that? 
I would say that it's the power of belief because belief does bind a set of ideas together. And when you dwell in that world enough, then you naturally, when you put yourself in the center of that belief and you become that belief, then you naturally, like things will naturally gravitate to you that confirm that belief in a way, you know, it just depends on like how you use word to invite things for yourself and your own mind and how you use word to emanate from that space. That's awesome. So you do a bit of what I would call life posting. Uh, you, you show <laughs> dancing with, with dragon, you, with your dragon staff, um, guitar, uh, dancing with a hula hoop. Tell me a little bit about your, what your daily practice looks like, whether it's in nature or what do you do to energize yourself? Well, I feel like when I'm dancing, the moment I decide I want to dance, I'm already energized. And it's not really like, mm. well, sometimes I like dance to just like become more presence, be present because when you flow, you like the whole objective is to surrender. And sometimes, you know, my day is just filled with like doing, doing, doing that I need to like balance it out with being, 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 but it doesn't necessarily mean I have to dance. It just means that it's like, I can forget this, but I don't really have a daily practice just because I do what I feel and I'm cool with me, <laughs> but I do, I do have like a daily like practice for at least like my body in like a yogic way. Like I just like breathe. I practice breathing consciously and I like stretch and because I feel like every thing like the world that you surround yourself with prepares your spirit in a way like everything is a preparation or an initiation to be present and you just got to decide in what way you want to be present and so I do that daily practice to stay discerning I guess when I'm navigating hmm. right you once said the fastest way to purify the spirit is to play Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about, like, you, you talk a lot about embodiment and becoming present. And um, I think that a lot of us try to meditate, but I think you have a unique perspective on uh, how we can be embodied and, and present in the moment. So can you go into some detail about what that looks like in your daily life and, and what you look for, how you remind yourself to do that? And, uh, and what your experience might be being present. <sighs> Let me just say that I'd be damned if there were instructions on how to be present because everybody just <laughs> be playing hide and motherfucking sick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, no. It, it, and it's like, it's respectable because it's not, I think like, I think everybody puts that burden on themselves and expect themselves to be like super like enlightened and happy. And so they like study all these things uh -huh. about all these like other people. Like, honestly, I don't think you need like, what's his name? <laughs> Fred, Frederick. How do you say it? Don't embarrass me. Fred Nietzsche? Nietzsche. Hey, Nietzsche. <laughs> no, but, um, 
most people, <laughs> I, I feel like 80 or 90% of the people who read it didn't even need to read it. Maybe they did, maybe it served them. But like most of the time, what people look for in there is just like that bridge to presence. And it's like, dude, you're really relying on someone else's intuition to learn to trust your own, which I guess like in a way is like community. Our community can be books if it helps us and it serves us. Most of the time, people just like are too reliant on other people's intuition that they never get to build their own. And sometimes people need like some people need that, but most times it becomes a crutch. It really does because like nobody like I don't know unless you're doing research and like writing a book or like I don't know like if you're just like a fucking normie, you just gotta sometimes own up to that shit and. All it takes is presence. Like there's so much that you can, there's so much power that you can hone just from being present. Like none of the most enlightened people like literally read anything. And if they did, then it took so much, like such a deep, deep presence. Like everything that Albert Einstein thought about was just, just happened from deep presence and that communion with that presence. And it's not that he had a unique genius that no one else can attain. It's just that he had a unique level of power to sustain that presence in such a way that could bring down that genius that everybody has. So unless you're trying to build fucking hydrogen bombs, then just be present, dog, and find look at a piece of plant and like laugh because it's just like you. Enjoyment. Nobody wants to be enlightened for the sake of enlightenment. They want to enjoy life. Right, right. That's a really good point. So you're basically talking about how um, books are like you can't learn from books about how to forget yourself, right? The only way to get in, into the moment and forget yourself is to just do it or to just be present, as you said. I feel like this is connected to something else you said, um, which you said that you used to have daily bouts of crying out of pure bliss and how it's starting to happen again. <laughs> you were saying how this time you understand a little bit more and how to harness it, but you, you call it a sacred offering. I didn't understand what you meant by sacred offering here. And so how is like crying out of pure bliss. I feel like this is connected to being embodied and present. The sacred offering, that almost seems religious or like you're interacting with some ultimate being. Well, in a way, it is to me like interacting with great, like the things in this world that I don't see, like that giant functioning geometry. And if you want to call that God, then go ahead and call it God. Like it's just presence. And the intelligence of that presence. And when I say it's a sacred offering, it's really just like, because I think people tend to see offering something as like losing something to like sacrificing, but it's not like joy can be an offering and you gain something from that. And when you feel, mm. and it's not the bliss that I'm offering, it's that I'm in that space to carry it. And what greater thing to offer than to be in that embodiment? Because it's literally like a gift for yourself and for the world around you. Like you want blissful people around you. I feel like bliss is like one of the most conducive feelings, manifestations of feelings of life. 
like you just freaking appreciate it and you don't fear death when you're blissful because you just know that you're in that space to appreciate the magnificence of yourself and also the world around you. Like if you're blissful, then you don't really care if you die today because you like just are fucking blissful. And it's an offering because it's natural to want to be in that space and it's an offering because everybody loves that shit. Who doesn't want bliss? Shit, everybody tries to find that in drugs. But when you find that in yourself, then it's a game changer for sure. So we're talking a bit about bliss and presence and embodiment. And you once told me that um, doubt is enough to reach presence. And I would like to learn more about that because I think of doubt like, you know, like I've read thinking fast and slow. And like the only bit of advice in that very thick book is to think in a way that is opposite to what you actually believe. And that's the only way that we can test our ideas. And then you said this to me, doubt is enough to reach presence. And I had never thought of doubt as a way to reach presence. I don't, I don't even know how that works actually. So if you can tell me how to do that, that'd be awesome. Everything can be your friend if you know how much of it will serve you and you take just that much. And I think doubt is one of those things. And even anger, like anger is a way to focus yourself if that's what you need right now. It doesn't, if you just, as long as you like use that as a tool and don't become it too much, then it's like, Jesus Christ, like it doesn't even matter if you're the most evil person in this world because nature doesn't give a fuck who you are. And <laughs> like literally undifferentiated freaking reality, like. There's that level of like you have to be accepting and have the humility to accept that you're not that special and the way you define things is not that special. It's like what you choose to experience from it. And doubt is one of those things that I've learned to use as a tool because, you know, you can doubt your doubts <laughs> and that could that could be something that like you use to surprise you. Like if you doubt your doubts, then you're make that, then you're saying that you're creating a space to open up for the world to surprise you. And doubt is a way to challenge yourself and also the world around you. Like wonder is a form of doubt and curiosity is a form of doubt. If we didn't doubt the world around us, we would cease to be like very curious. But it's that we doubt our understanding of certain things that is what is allowing us to move and it's kind of like a, I, f I just feel like doubt is a way to have that movement, which for most people is really useful. I think for all people in a way, but at the end of the day, you know, it's not doubt, you know, it's something else. And I guess I just frame it as doubt because I don't feel like everybody has a healthy relationship with doubt. But when you expose doubt in a way that is serving you, then you kind of open up to it. And it's magic. Um, no, I, I think that's awesome. And it makes a lot of sense about curiosity and approaching ideas in, in a novel way. Um, and that makes me think about the way that a lot of the people I interact with are to some degree similar to me, you know, like coastal Americans that grew up in or around large cities. And I'm curious, so you, 
you were an islander that moved to Alaska. It's not like you moved to New York, right? You moved to Alaska. So you have this vibrant and unique experience. And I was curious how you thought that might have shaped you personally and shaped your ideas. And I also wanted to ask you if you think that you've encountered anything along your journey that you might offer to others for other people that have never had the experience in the islands and they've never had any experience in Alaska or maybe nature at large. If you want to experience nature and you want to experience it in a vibrant way with other people, then experience the people who hold and bear that culture that reflects um, the relationship with the land. I would say that it's very eye-opening and it's very humbling to be surrounded by people who have that relationship with the earth. Like if it weren't for like the indigenous people who know Alaska better than anyone, then I wouldn't have been able to open up to the beauty in a way. And I wouldn't have like understood my intuition in the way that I do. I don't know, for some reason, I, I don't know if it's, this is related, but I'm going to go back to that concept of doubt. Like, we wouldn't doubt something. Like, we talked earlier about how, like, we function from recognition, and we wouldn't doubt something if we didn't already know something else. And I guess the use of doubt isn't as much to, like, prove something is wrong, but to follow that knowing. And I don't know, and I guess it kind of just goes into that like respect for indigenous people because like you know there's all these like freaking fads about how to fucking live and like go vegan because you're killing animals and killing animals isn't love i'm not saying like like every vegan is that way but like there's it's kind of like it's a weird way to breed or defend the truth because the truth doesn't need to be defended when you look at indigenous people, you're going to, what are you going to say? Like, go fucking be vegan when the only thing that exists is literally fucking like whale and like you live literally on frozen ice. Like, no, like you learn to really have that humility for life. You learn to have that humility that seasons happen, that sacrifice happens. And it's just a matter of doing it in such a way that is honorable. Like, I don't know. I think it's more ethical to freaking kill an animal yourself and eat it than to go to grocery store and have someone else kill it. Like there's no honor there because it wasn't a fair fight. You didn't give that meat a fair fight. But when you commune with nature and try to manifest something in a way that reflects the natural order, then it's I feel personally it's protected. It's not like humans are special. We're just responsible. And when you're in a different space, you have different responsibilities. And so it seems like the way you're describing this is that the human relationship with the land is pregnant within the people that actively interact with the land all the time. And so that it's almost like language, right? It's like, I can't learn Spanish if I'm not immersed in it, not only from the words and the vernacular and the semantics, but also in, in the world, because language describes a world in which people live, mm -hmm. right? So in the same way that a person might want to learn Chinese or, or Spanish, 
Um, they need to be immersed in a, a kind of world to understand it. It's also as if there is this great history of our connection with nature that there is this richness that you cannot completely access just alone with trees, right? Like you need to interact with people that have lived nature and have had that great human tradition passed down to them because it is so so much more more rich and and loving and deep than anything that we could quickly experience going on a nature hike on our day off. Oh, for sure. You learn so much more when it's like so many generations of wisdom. Like language is just so powerful. Like literally it bears culture. The sound of the way we speak reflects like is inspired from like the world that we live in. And it's so crazy to me that in the Philippines where I come from, there's like 150, over over 150 different dialects. I speak two of those and only two. And even just those two, I can tell you right now, like it holds nature in a completely different way. I, I always talk about this, like parents in my language me, literally mean that which you come from. And medicine in my language, it, we use the word root for medicine and also like the root of a plant and like the root of a problem. Like a word for medicine is root because we had that deep relationship with plants and we understood that in a way that allowed us to communicate and use language to reflect that. I guess that's very reflective of like American society. The way we speak to ourselves, the way we define the world around us creates the world around us, which is like pretty obvious. But like when I learned the word anxiety and depression, I became less and less accountable for my own mind because I would recognize it and I'd be like, oh, that's anxiety. And then it just like stores it in the back burner when it would have been something that I should have felt through, you know? And I guess that was just like me on my end too, but I just feel like the use of language and the way that people use language is very influential. And I think like when we talked about how indigenous people are very like, they know how to take care of the land and they know how to take care of each other, like that's kind of in a way what we're trying to emulate right now like in this podcast it'll draw people who want to learn how to take care of themselves at the end of the day or at least navigate their mind and so like we can't escape our nature no matter how much we forget because at the end of the day that little thread of our connection with nature is gonna tug on us no matter where we are because nature we are nature so I guess that's why I'm just so like respect full I guess of nature and I respect it a lot and I've been humbled by it and I draw strength from it I think that's incredibly powerful and I think that's a great place to end really because uh, I feel like it's the climax of this whole talk I would just finally ask you is there anything that you want to share anything you want to shout out any any last words that you want to share with your audience uh, go ahead I just want to say shout out to everyone. Shout out to Vecnan Kreit. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody everybody listening and everybody, you know, I feel like we're all sharing. I don't know. We're, our heart is all in the same place mm -hmm. at the end of the day. We just got to figure out how to hear each other. And so shout out to those who are hearing and listening. <laughs> it's like um nobody's special nobody gets, nature doesn't give a fuck 
Um, bye. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me, Kay. This was a lot of fun. I really loved it. There was there was so much that we covered, and your perspective is extremely unique and beautiful. And uh, I'm glad I'm able to share it with the world. Thank you. Thank you, Nicholas. I hope you had as much fun listening to this podcast as I had recording it. If you enjoyed, you can subscribe for future episodes at becomingcreature.substack.com. You can find K at K-E-H-W-H-O on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Becoming Critter, C-R-I-T-T-E-R. Our music was by Frank I-V and Murphy underscore Chicken. This has been A Becoming Creature, and we hope you enjoyed. <laughs>